back in 2009, I remember being shocked when my father pointed out that the president had not thanked God in his Thanksgiving Day proclamation. 2009 was not that long ago. The president at that time, whoever he was, didn't encourage us to thank God either. He neither thanked God nor encouraged the country to thank God, yet we were still celebrating this day called Thanksgiving. Now, a lot has happened in the last, what, 13 years. Some years have been different. Some years have been the same as that one. But that year still stands out to me because it was at that time that I really came to realize just how empty Thanksgiving is without God. Thanksgiving is truly empty without God. It was at that time that I realized that only Christians can truly celebrate Thanksgiving. I don't mean to say that nobody else can take the day off. They can. I don't mean that nobody else is able to feel gratitude or to have any understanding of what other people have done for them. They certainly do. But to celebrate Thanksgiving <clears throat> is truly a Christian endeavor, a Christian work, if you will. And it does require us to give ourselves to the work of it. It's our nature to first live as though what we are experiencing that is good is simply owed to us. We live in constant expectation that the world revolves around us from a very young age, right? And so learning to actually look at those good things and to truly be thankful for them takes a conscious effort on our part. Something that I think happens with many feelings is that we don't want to work at them. We don't want to work at love. We don't want to work at gratitude. We don't want to work at righteous anger. We don't want to work at a feeling. We would rather simply spontaneously have it well up within us. Right? Now, it is a joy when joy wells up within us without working at it. Right? And it's something to be thankful for when God grants us thankfulness without working at it. But you see how I keep putting the word ahead of the sentence? It's a joy when... So if, if it's a joy when joy wells up within us, I'm telling you that there's something you have that you can work at. Rejoicing when that happens. 
right? Or if it's something to be thankful for, when thankfulness wells up in your heart, then actually you should be thankful when that happens. It's another thing to be thankful for. And you should work at it. This morning we're going to look at how Christians can be thankful no matter what we are going through. And that certainly requires work. It's not going to well up within us necessarily, this thankfulness, this gratitude towards God that we are commanded to give when we have bad things happen to us. Not unless we have first given ourselves to the work of understanding what we have to be thankful for in the first place. So don't discount the idea of gratitude or thankfulness that isn't spontaneous. Don't discount giving yourself to the work of creating the right feelings in yourself. And don't, don't uh, look down on the feelings that other people work hard to generate as though they aren't real. You, you understand what I'm saying? If you're... Uh, if your wife is working hard to uh, say something positive to you. That's nothing to look down on, right? Well, she shouldn't have to work hard at it. Look at all of me that is worth praising. That's, that's silly, right? We have to work hard at love. We have to work hard at gratitude. And yes, these are feelings. And unless we are truly feeling them, we haven't gotten to the point of love. We haven't gotten to the point of gratitude if it's simply a thing that we say but without ever actually feeling it. We're not actually grateful. So if we're going to look at how Christians can be thankful no matter what we are going through. I don't mean some, some simple thing that we repeat, some inane, trite phrase that we say, like, better than I deserve, right? How am I doing? I'm, I'm doing better than I deserve. Well, okay, yeah, that's a true statement, right? And if you mean it every time you say it, praise God. That's wonderful. But it's not something that we're supposed to simply throw out there. Oh, I'm so thankful, you know, when actually we're not at all thankful. It's not just our words. It's our hearts that have to be thankful. And so we're going to look at how to go about getting true thankfulness in our hearts. Gratitude towards the Lord. And we're going to see that true thanksgiving is something that non-Christians ultimately cannot do. We're going to see that it's a cheap imitation 
at heart. And finally, we're going to note the things that keep us from true Christian thankfulness. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. You may be seated. At the beginning of this passage, Paul gives the Philippians and us a number of commands. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And in case we missed it. Again, I will say, rejoice. Repetition is not something that only the biblical authors use, right? We repeat ourselves when we want people to when we want to make sure that people hear and understand our instructions. But it's something that should stand out to us in God's word when God repeats his commands to us. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Now the apostle Paul was aware And I am too, how impossible that command might seem to some of you. Probably to most of us. Rejoice in the Lord, sure. That I can do sometimes. Rejoice in the Lord always. That is a bit beyond my capability. There are plenty of times where I do not feel capable of rejoicing in the Lord. The pain that we face in this life is often extreme. How can we rejoice in the Lord at that time? What are the things that make it difficult for us to rejoice in the Lord. It might be loss of job or income. Some of us have lost dreams, 
dreams that are very hard to give up. We've lost some loved ones to death. We've lost other loved ones to sin. We've lost children. We've seen and felt the pain of abuse. We feel the aching pain of divorce in our families. We've suffered under persecution. In all of these things, the instructions from God through the Apostle Paul are rejoice in the Lord always. Paul doesn't stop there. He follows that command up with another. He doesn't just demand that we constantly rejoice in the Lord. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Now, in each of the circumstances I've described, we feel justified in making people pay. Don't we? For causing us pain, we want there to be some vindication, right? Or we want simply to be able to complain. We feel justified. Ultimately, we are quick to seek vengeance or we are quick to despair or we are quick to blame God. And he tells us to have a gentle spirit that is so obvious in response to these difficult things that all men see it. And so, when we suffer these things, we are actually not to respond in anger, not to respond with being indignant or pointing fingers with wrath. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Why does Paul bring up having a gentle spirit after saying rejoice? Because Paul knows what's going to come to mind when he says rejoice in the Lord always is the times where it feels impossible to rejoice. And then he knows not only are at those times are you going to find it difficult to rejoice, but you're going to, you're going to be angry. An awful lot of the time you're going to be tempted to be angry. And so he says, look, you have, to, you have to have a gentle character, a gentle spirit. And it should be so clear that everybody sees it. Now, if you were to turn back to Acts chapter 16, where Paul is actually in Philippi, just starting the church there, you would see that Paul, from the very beginning, when he first gets there, from the first work that he begins in planting a church in Philippi, 
that he has a great relationship with that church. The church that he's writing this letter to. The Philippians is the letter to the church at Philippi. And so in Philippi, while Paul is there, he has this beautiful, loving relationship. He loves them. They love him. It's clear. But our text this morning isn't from Acts. Our text is from a letter, which means he's not there with them at the time that he writes this. In fact, where is Paul when he's telling them to rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I will say rejoice. Yeah, I think I saw your hand first. He's in jail. Paul is not speaking from a place of light thinking about this command. He's not speaking without understanding the difficulty of it. He's not simply using it as something that he says in a trite, repetitive, easy to say for himself because he's not suffering through it position. His position is in prison. Not only is he in jail, but he's not sure whether he will live much longer or whether he's going to be put to death. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It comes off a little bit different knowing that he's in prison, doesn't it? knowing that he might die soon. It's a little bit different than the person who has never suffered anything in their life, as far as you know, who says, oh, don't worry, I'm sure things will get better for you soon. Pats you on the back. What do you know? You've never been through this difficulty. You've never suffered this kind of sorrow. You've never had this kind of pain. Rejoice in the Lord. Well, you've got plenty to rejoice for. I'm the one who's suffering. No, Paul is speaking from prison. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I will say rejoice. Now, imagine yourself being one of the Philippian church members receiving this letter in the first place. And what are you concerned about? What is keeping you from joy in Philippi? One of the things is knowing that the Apostle Paul is in prison and might die. That's one of the things that causes people in Philippi to not rejoice. Because they love him. They have that close relationship with him. Paul is not being insensitive here with his commands. He's not in a position any of us would like to be in. Now, I don't mean to discount the person who says to you, actually, you need to learn to rejoice in the Lord while they're not suffering. They're not wrong. 
but it is easier for us to take it from somebody who's in prison, right? Paul is indeed facing real troubles, and he's not just ignoring them or pretending that they don't exist. Certainly there are people who uh, are good at pretending as though their problems aren't real. But that's not what Paul is doing. He's not ignoring his problems. He knows the difficulty of what he's commanding. And how does he tell us to deal with the difficult, painful circumstances that we face? He continues on and he says, The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Now there's two ways of taking that. One is to be thankful and turn to the Lord in prayer. And the other is to say, well, if he's so near, then why doesn't he do something? Right? Those are the two ways of responding to the statement, the Lord is near while we are in suffering, while we're facing trials and difficulties. Obviously, Paul does not mean for us to become embittered at the Lord by telling us that the Lord is near, but he rather is telling us that so that, verse 6, we will be anxious for nothing. God is near, so you don't have to worry. God is near. Don't be anxious. God is near. Therefore, pray to Him. Make everything known to Him by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. It is God who is with us. He's the one who made the heavens and the earth. He's the one who has made promises to us. What are some of those promises? The ones that I think of with regard to helping us through times of trial and temptation and difficulty is He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. What a promise. He will not leave or forsake His children. What a promise. He will protect us and keep us, sheltering us under the shadow of His wings. What else do we know about our God? He already knows what we need. Matthew 6, 7, and 8 we read, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He knows what you need. Come to Him. Ask Him. So be anxious for nothing. The Lord is near. All we have to do is speak to Him and He promises to hear us. 
In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The point is not to ignore your problems. The point is to put them in proper perspective. How should we make our requests? Thankfully. What? But I'm making a request because I don't have something I need. I'm making a request because I, I don't like the situation that I'm in. I'm making a request because I feel a lack of something in my life. Otherwise, I wouldn't be making a request. Well, yes, God knows you have these needs. God knows even before you do, even better than you do what you need. Why does Paul say to make our requests with gratitude or with thankfulness? It doesn't make sense. Well, he has promised to hear and to answer our prayer. Is that a reason to be grateful when you pray? you know when you're praying that it's not just positive thoughts out into the ether, as we like to say on Facebook, right? Positive thoughts and touchy good feelings to you and yours, right? Maybe you guys have just Christian friends on Facebook, I don't know. But I mean, and I mean, it's probably been two years since I've been on Facebook, and even two years ago, people had switched from, you know, I'm praying for you to I'm, I'm sending positive vibes your way and, and various things like that, right? And so if, if all we can do is make our thoughts go up into the air like, oh, this sucks, oh, I wish I had such and such, well, then, yeah, there's nothing to be grateful for while you're making requests to the nothingness, right? But if there is a God who hears us, who knows what we need, then we can be thankful when we are praying for what we need because we know he's there and we know he's listening. We know he will hear us and we know he's promised to answer us. How could we not be thankful when we're praying, when we're making our requests known? We can be grateful that they're being heard. What else can make us grateful, thankful while we are making requests? John 15, 16 says, God is speaking to us, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So you've got that promise that he will hear and that he will answer our prayers. And you also have that reminder that he reached down into the muck and the mire and pulled us out, not because of something we did, not because of something we deserved, not because of some goodness in us, not because we would choose him, but because he chose us. Therefore, he decided, I'm going to make this one mine, and I'm going to make him fruitful. Wow. How beautiful is that? 
And so we can be grateful because we know that He is at work. We're grateful that He will hear us and that He will answer our prayers and also grateful that He is at work even in what we are going through. He is at work. He is making us into what we are supposed to be. and He is, he is making it so that we will bear fruit for His kingdom. And that that fruit will be lasting fruit. It will remain. We've been reading in family devotions about some of the kings of Israel and Judah. We read about several kings who made reformation in the land of Judah. Only to have their sons go all the way back to idolatry and worse than their father. Oh, the sadness, the sorrow, the, the shame of the fruit not lasting. But our fruit will last by God's gracious kindness to us. What a beautiful thing to be thankful for. What does Paul have to rejoice in? He's in jail. But here he is, not just content, but like Peter and the rest of the apostles in Acts 5, he is rejoicing that he had been considered worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. It's a quote from Acts 5 when Peter and John, and they're, 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 they're being arrested, they're suffering, they're being beaten. And what do they do? They rejoice. Rejoice, why? That they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. <clears throat> what does Paul have to rejoice in? The gospel for himself. That Christ has saved him. What does Paul have to be thankful for? That the gospel is being proclaimed to others in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul constantly thanks God for the people in the churches he writes to. Why? Because he's thankful for the fruit that he sees in them as well. In this case, he's thankful for the fruit that he sees in the support that they have sent him while he's in jail. The Philippians know he's in jail and sent money to him because they love him. His desire is to see people come to faith. And each church is a group of people who have been saved from the punishment their sin deserves. 1 Corinthians 1.4 I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. He's rejoicing at the work of the gospel in others, not just in himself. 2 Corinthians 1.11 You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. 
Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Notice how he's praying for them and he's thanking God for them at the same time. Philippians 1, 3 through 5. I thank my God, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Why? Because they had the gospel. They had received it. They participated in it. 1 Thessalonians 1-2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Notice how it's constant, this prayer and giving thanks. Why? Well, because he knows that there's much to be thankful for in them, but also that there is much that God still needs to do in and through and for them. We have much to be thankful for even when there are problems, which there most certainly were in the church in Corinth. Right? The church where they were celebrating incest in their body. What? That's a messed up church. But Paul is able to give thanks for the work that God had done in them. While praying that, and instructing that they change. I just went through some of the letters that Paul wrote. Of course, that's ignoring the other New Testament authors and their instructions and prayers regarding thanksgiving. But what is the outcome of turning to God in thankful prayer? Paul tells us that it will be peace that passes understanding. Peace that passes understanding in our passage. No more anxiousness. Non-Christians simply can't be thankful in that way. There is no guarantee in the non-Christian's life about the future. Thankfulness can only last for a moment until the thing is gone. But for us, the promise of God is ultimately what we have to be thankful for. His work is not going to come to an end. He will complete it. His promises will not be left unaccomplished. He will do what he says he will do. And so we have the ability to be perpetually thankful. And thankful to the one who is actually accomplishing it. Non-Christians do not have God's promise of joy and eternal life in his presence. Rather, they have just the opposite. Luke 6, 22-25, we read, Blessed are you when men hate you, 
and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. So what do we have? We can be sure that we are blessed when we suffer shame for the name of Christ, just as the apostles did. But he continues on, But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The world may indeed have rejoicing for a moment. But in the end, judgment comes. The world cannot rejoice that God's church is being built up by His hand. They're not brothers with those who have these promises from God. They are enemies of the brethren, just as they are enemies of God. The closest they can get to this kind of thankfulness is a sort of Buddhist acceptance of everything that comes their way by ignoring it. As long as I just don't feel. Right? So cut yourself off from your feelings. Cut yourself off from your suffering. Cut yourself off from the ability from other, of others to hurt you. And accept life as something that just happens. The only perspective they can put the problems in their life into is to compare themselves to other people many of whom are, of course, far better off than them. Well, at least I'm not as poor as that person, or at least I'm not as ugly as that person, or at least I'm not as whatever, right? But then that, that might make you feel okay for a little bit until you turn around and you're like, oh man, look at that person. They're rich and they look good. Right? Comparisons don't help much, is what I want you to see. Especially if you end up at the low end of life. What if you're the poorest? What if you're the lowest? Nothing to be thankful for. Now, of course, if you watch the Grammys or the Emmys or the whatever in the world else they have, wherever there's awards, you will hear of thankfulness, right? They can be thankful to their mom, their agent, their wife who encouraged them to pursue their dream. But they can never feel the depth of thankfulness that a Christian feels to God who has rescued us from the domain of darkness and death that we deserve and transferred us into his kingdom of light and life by the blood of his Son, his Son, His only begotten Son, whom He sacrificed to pay the penalty for our sins. They can never be thankful in a way that leads to peace that passes understanding. That only comes from the Holy Spirit. So what are we thankful for? What prevents us from being thankful? I'll tell you, if you think you deserve all the good things that you've gotten, you're not going to be thankful. If you think 
the good things that you have, you got for yourself by the power of your own hands? No reason to be thankful. You're never going to be thankful if you're too proud to ask God for help. If you are filled with anxiety and worry, let your requests be made known to him. Receive that peace. If God isn't sovereign, if God isn't good, if you don't believe those things, then you will have a hard time being thankful, even when you receive good things. Because you'll be waiting for his other shoe to drop if you don't think he's good. Or you'll be thinking, well, you know, he, got, he managed to get me something good, but he's not sovereign, so who knows what might come that he can't take care of for me. And so, of course, we must doubt and lack trust in such a circumstance. Or, finally, what else will keep us from being thankful if we are dwelling on false, dishonorable, wrong, impure, ugly, worthless things? That will change your attitude in a hurry. Away from thanksgiving. Right? If you're a nihilist, you're never going to be thankful. But we as Christians can be thankful when we view our life and God's work properly. The good things that he has done. That he's near. That he hears us. That he knows what we need. That he's sovereign. So let us give thanks to him together. Heavenly Father, we thank you now. We thank you for your character, for your work, that you have called a people out of darkness and into your kingdom of light and life. Father, we rejoice and give thanks, and we pray, Father, that you would make our lives bear good fruit for your kingdom, that you would build your church. And Father, we pray that you would help us to truly be thankful for all that you have done, even when you allow us to suffer. Father, may we rejoice knowing that you are accomplishing your good work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.